Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. I'm excited for our learning today. If you have the opportunity to get the sheet handy from the Shabbat bulletin before Shabbat uh, came on, then you'll see that it's an extensive source sheet because the first two sources themselves, which come uh, from respectively the books of Nevi'im and um, and from the Talmud, from Brachot, are long. They're, just, they're long sources, but they're fun sources. They're really fun sources to go through. If you didn't get that source sheet out, you can either... It, it's actually convenient to grab a machzor for this first part of it if you wanted to follow along, or you can just follow along because I'm going to teach all the way through this today. So it should be pretty easy to find your way um, through this piece of it. Yeah, Taibo? Um, I thought you just said it was long, and the version... I saved was only four pages. Yeah. yeah, it's four pages, but I find that to be kind of long. No, but I like I like your attitude. If four pages isn't long for you, then like that's great. That's good. I think Tybal's my kind of student. You know, my kind of congregant. So way to go. I like it. Uh, yes. Very good. Thumbs up from right back at you. Um, okay, so I love this story, and I first learned this story in my first year of cantorial school in Jerusalem, and it's the story that we study on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, the Haftarah on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, but it's a piece of the story on Rosh Hashanah that we very rarely study. It's an aspect of the, the Haftarah that we very rarely study. And it's an aspect that you hear me mention all the time. And this is my eighth year at Temple Batham. And since I've been here, I've introduced this translation for the Amidah, for the private Amidah, that you may or may not even notice my doing or other rabbis doing. And it's all based around Rav Hamnuna's teaching from... What a great name, Hamnuna. Rav Hamnuna is teaching from Brachot, from, from the Babylonian Talmud, all about Hannah's prayer. And that's the idea of the whispered Amidah. But it's not just about the Amidah, it's about all private prayer. So this teaching is all about the idea of prayer not belonging inside our head, but rather on our lips. So the reigning question that we're going to circle back to at the very end of this, the question I want to answer is, why isn't it good enough? If God is a, an all-knowing, an omniscient divine, if God is an omniscient divine and God is... God knows our thoughts, which is actually part of our Rosh Hashanah liturgy. Why is it not good enough just to pray in inside our head? Why is it not good enough just to think our prayers? You get the question? If God can understand our thoughts, why do we bother to pray out loud? 
And interestingly, you're going to see this in the trajectory of the sources. They are going to be concerned not with our vertical relationship, not with our relationship with the divine and how we pray, so much as our relationship with the other people praying around us. But I promise you, we are still going to get to the answer of that question. Why is it not enough just to pray inside of our heads? So to get there, we have to start at this story of Hannah. Now, who was Hannah? The beginning of the book of Shmuel is a fake out about the protagonist of the story. It's actually a double fake out because as we know from the title of the book, it's actually about Samuel. It's about Shmuel. We kind of know that. So it's a double fake out. But the the story begins with, now there was a certain man. There was this Ish from Ramataim Sofim of the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah. And you would think that this story is going to be about who? About whom? About Elkanah. Just like so many other figures in the books of the prophets. He was who? We even get his lineage. He's the son of Yeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Suf, the son of an Ephraimite. Okay? So we get his entire lineage. And he had two Nashim, two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other one was Penina. When we're given them in that order, that is the book of Shmuel telling us that Hannah was the first wife, and Penina was the second wife. And Penina had two she had children and Hannah had no children. Okay. This is a cultural problem. Right? It's a problem for whom? It's a problem for Hannah, right? Because Hannah is the first wife. And we've seen this problem before. It appeared back before meaning canonically before. The Torah is canonically earlier in our canon of, of Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, and Chaduvim. We have earlier in our canon the story of two sisters, remember? Rachel and Leah. And Leah is the older one. Leah and Rachel, actually. And then Leah can't conceive, and it's a whole... So we've seen this before. This is not a new issue, and it's a hint to us, without saying a word, that this is a problem. We already know that. We have the context. It's a problem. But also the reader, in their own context, would have known this was a problem. And this man, Elkanah, we're still, we still have Elkanah as the protagonist. A little bit. And he went up out of his city from year to year to worship because he went out of the city to go and do sacrifices. This is still in a time when people would go up to do offerings, right? They would go out to the nearest temple and we're about to learn about Shiloh, about going out to Shiloh. To, um, so he would go out of his city from year to year to worship and to sacrifice to the uh, to Adonai Tzvaot, to our God in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, whose names were Hophni and Pinchas, 
not our same, obviously, not the same Pinchas, uh, they were priests to the Lord. Okay, so that in that temple, we're being introduced to some characters. We've got Elkanah, we've got his wives, Hannah and Penina, Hannah who doesn't have kids, Penina who does have kids, and then we've got Eli and his sons, who are the priests who operate this worship space up at Shiloh. And it came to pass upon a day, this one time when Elkanah sacrificed, that he gave to Penina, his wife, and to all of her sons and daughters portions. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut her womb, which is a way of saying he was feeling sorry for his barren wife, right? And her rival vexed her sore to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she vexed her, meaning so Penina would would be harsh with Hannah. Therefore she wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why are you crying so much? And why are you not eating? And why is your heart so aggrieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Boy, does he not understand his wife, right? Why are you crying? I gave you all this food. Am I not better to you as a husband than ten sons would be? But she is miserable. She can't eat. She can't appreciate anything because Panina is giving her such a hard time because she doesn't appreciate the dynamic with Elkanah. Everything is rotten among the three of them. Okay. So, Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, after they had had drink in Shiloh. Now, Eli, side note, the priest, he sat by a seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Okay, so he's up there and he's waiting. And Hannah, she was in the bitterness of soul and she prayed to God and she wept and wept and wept and she vowed a vow and she said, oh, Adonai Tzavah if you will look indeed on the affliction of thy handmaid and remember me and not forget your handmaid but will give to your handmaid a man child right a male child then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and I will not cut his hair no razor will come upon his head right he'll be in Nazir um, we know that later in the story this comes to fruition but I digress and it came to pass as she prayed long before the Lord that Eli the priest watched her mouth now, Hannah, she spoke Beliba in her house. Only her lips moved. We're going to get to the Hebrew for all of this later. Only her lips moved, but her voice could not be heard. By whom? By Ellie, who's watching from the doorpost, right? So her voice couldn't be heard. Therefore, Ellie thought she was drunk. And Ellie said to her, How long are you going to be drunk? Put your wine away. And Hannah answered, and said, No, my lord, Adoni, Eli, priest guy, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk no wine, no strong drink, but I pour out my soul, it is a pun in Hebrew as well, before the Lord. Count not thy handmaid for a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and my vexation have I spoken. Then Eli answered and said, Lech l'shalom, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've asked of God. And she said, let your servant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way, and she ate, and her countenance was no more sad, 
And then they went on, they prayed, and eventually she does conceive of a male child and keeps her promise. Okay, so we have this intense interaction between Hannah and Ellie, and it becomes the centerpiece of the story. We move away from Elkanah and the drama between Panina and Hannah, and the drama shifts to be a drama between Hannah and the priest Ellie. Now, back in the Talmud, there are lots of different pieces of discourse that are preserved there. There are legal arguments preserved, including minority opinions. You must know some midrashim that are preserved. Right? You know some stories that are preserved there. There are baraitas, early teachings of rabbis that are preserved there. And there are whole cloth sermons that survive inside the Talmud. And what I'm about to teach through, which is on page two of this, depending on whether you ask Tybal or me, either long or very short. Um, I know you didn't say very short, uh, but uh, either um, uh, page two of this source packet. If you take a look at it, this is Babylonian Talmud Brachot. It starts at the end of 31a. It goes on to 31b. And it's this sermonette, sermon, beautifully crafted by Rav Hamnuna. And we're going to go through this sermon and see how Rav Hamnuna learns from from Hannah how it is that Jews are supposed to pray. So we're going to walk through it. And I think it's gorgeous. It's literarily gorgeous. So he says this, Amar Rav Hamnuna, so Rav Hamnuna says, how many, it's rhetorical, look how many laws we can learn from these verses from Chana. And Chana, she spoke in her heart. What do we learn from this? So if you're following along in the sheet, the pieces that are not underlined in the both I guess I did that both in the Hebrew and in the English the pieces that are not underlined are the pieces from the text from the uh, from Shmuel and the pieces that are underlined are Rav Hamnuna sermonizing passionately okay so there's a text and then underlined is Rav Hamnuna's sermon on this because from here and then in brackets we learn Lemipalel Sarich Shikaven Libo that somebody who is praying has to direct their heart. They have to have kavana in their heart. Remember that in the ancient world, the heart is the seat of wisdom. So it's kind of a duplicate meaning there. And also remember that kavana and kivun are related. Kivun means a direction, right? And so one is intentionally directing. You're, You're directing your body, but you're also sort of directing your heart. So you want, somebody has to put put themselves in the right place and intend their prayers in the right way. I think it's kind of a light start. It's not a bam start of a sermon, right? So she speaks in her heart. What did this mean that she spoke in her heart? It's actually kind of fuzzy language in, in the original text. So he's taking out of the you should have to 
or Lib- or Libo in his ma- masculine uh, language. Rock svateha naot. Only her lips waved, walked. Right. It's cool um, imagery. Nikan from here again in brackets we learn. Let me palal. That they have to do what? They have to cut their lips. They have to they have to actually move their lips. They can't keep their lips closed during prayer. So taking rock just in kind of a different way as we do also in English. Just can mean a lot of things. Just that her lips would move. That's what it meant that she was praying. So what does this mean? We have to move our lips when we pray. And her voice wasn't heard. And this gets really into the heart of his sermon. And you wonder what was going on in his community. That it's forbidden to raise his voice in his praying. Who's who can't raise whose voice? Plony Almoni, Joe Schmo, in the fifth row in the back of Davening. Not the not somebody praying on their own in their living room. Not me standing up at the Amud leading the congregation, but Joanna or Irv or Nathan or Gary or Marlise or Diane, right? Those people, when we are just standing in our place, we are not supposed to raise our voices in tefillah. More on this. The Sakra. He thought that that she was um, uh, drunk. Mikan, that somebody who's drunk, it's forbidden for them to pray. Can't pray if you're intoxicated. And this next piece that. Uh, it get, starts to get into the, the next um, uh, um, the next chunk that we won't have enough time to get into, which is a new theme, which has to do with what this text has to teach us about needing to um, say something to our neighbors when we see them doing something unseemly. We have to give them tohaha. But also that when someone accuses us of doing something and they're wrong in their accusation, we must clear our name. Okay? So Rav Hamnuna sees in what Ellie does an appropriate calling out of someone who is drunk. Right? He names it would have been wrong of Hannah to be intoxicated and it was right of Hannah to clear her name in that moment. I want to dig in with the next few sources on this idea about the raising of one's voice in prayer and this idea of the whisper in prayer. Where do we get this idea of Amidah Belachash, of the whispering in the prayer room? If we can't raise our voice in prayer, then what does that mean? We have to cut our lips. We're supposed to open our lips in prayer, but we cannot raise our voice in prayer. So what does it mean to pray like Hannah? So in the Babylonian Talmud, going back seven pages, and again going one page forward in our source sheet, the one who makes their voice heard, Lashmia, in their in their praying, that is in their again, you gotta picture somebody who's like at Shul, 
praying among a congregation of people. Okay, you with me? Like somebody who's just praying in in a community. Hare zemiktane amuna. That's a person of very little faith. Hmm. Interesting. A person who raises their voice in their prayer, that is a person who is counted among false prophets, prophets of lies. Rashi takes this and adds a comment. What does it mean? They're mitane amuna. They're from very little faith. It's as if that person thinks that God cannot hear the whisper. That It's as if by, they're raising their voice as if God can't hear them if they were only praying just a little bit. And so they need to pray loudly. And that is the opposite of humility in prayer, as if God can't hear. And so there's no amuna there. There's no faith there. Right? Because they're shouting it as if God can't hear unless they're shouting. And what is is the um and what is the issue? We're gonna go Oh, hang on, I wanna bring up one more one more thought um in from the Tosefta. Sorry, so the Tosefta, which is a Maybe an earlier text than the Mishnah. It depends on um, who you ask. I'm not going to get into it right now, but possibly a parallel text to the Mishnah, an earlier text, dual layer than the Talmud. They do. They, I want. I want us to read this text quickly. Text four. Yichol yehi mashmiya kolo bitfilato pereish bechana bechana himedaberet aliba. That actually one might have thought to pray loud enough to cause on voices to be heard and to feel up, but it's explained by Hana just to pray in your heart. The Tosefta says we actually do have to learn this from Hana. So it's a counter argument to this text in Brachot because it actually does make sense that we might have thought that fervent prayer out loud would have been the preferred thing. Right? Because we might have thought, well, that's the right thing, which is to pray out loud, right? Doesn't God want us to pray as loudly as we possibly can? And so the text in Brachot 24b is there to say to us, well, it means you have very little faith that God could hear you in a whisper. But then the Mishnah Torah, then Rambam comes along to say, and for the sake of time, I'll teach this text in the English, say, that's not the problem with the shouting, right? Of course, God would appreciate it if you said it even louder and with even more appreciation for the divine might but an even volume of the voice while praying. How is it done? Right? I promised I'd teach this in English. I'll go back to the English. One shouldn't raise one's voice and one's tefillah. And one should not pray silently, belly, ba, completely in one's heart. Rather, one should part and move the words on one's lips. And one should cause one's voice only to be hear, heard in one's ears. Right? The perfect volume of one's voice is only so that one's own ears can hear it. That's the reigning halacha uh, around the the perfect volume in public. And one should only raise one's voice if one were sick or one were unable to direct one's heart otherwise up to the point when one's voice would be heard aloud. This is permissible, but only in the case that one is not praying congregationally in order that that they should not disrupt other people's prayer with their voice. 
that's the problem. If you pray loudly, not only are you of little faith, but you're going to distract all the people around you. Right? We have to learn to pray with God, but we also have to learn to pray alongside our fellow human beings. We have to learn to be in congregation. And all of us, every one of us who is here together this afternoon, every person who might be listening to this teaching as a podcast in the future of later times, <laughs> everyone has experienced praying near somebody who is praying too loudly. And everyone knows how distracting that can be, right, from one's own thoughts. So that's the issue that the Mishnah Torah takes uh, with this particular um, volume. And so what's the perfect volume? The perfect volume is Balachash in a whisper so that you can be heard only by your own ears. It's like a volume that keeps it within the realm of your own Dalitamot, right? As if there were an invisible plexiglass-ish situation and you could only hear to your own ears. Okay. I want to share two more things and I'm going to leave the space for any thoughts and questions that people want to respond to because I wanted to teach my way through this and then leave space for thoughts and questions. I want to go back to the question that I raised at the very beginning, which is, why is it not good enough to just pray inside of our head? Because now we've gotten to the point where we agree that the problem with praying too loudly, right? The problem with praying out loud is that we might distract all the other people who are around us. That is the issue. If we pray too loudly, we might wind up distracting the people who are all around us. And it also displays a lack of humility, a lack of faith in God. And therefore, wouldn't it be better if we were quiet and isn't the most extreme version of the quiet just being inside our head? Why should we learn from Hannah's prayer that her lips were moving or waving or walking means that we have to cut our lips and make sounds come out at this perfect whisper sound and space. Does someone want to give an answer before I give my from the heart answer or if it looks sure. like an offer? Sure. Uh, just for myself, when you recite something, you uh, then can reflect upon it. And it becomes more meaningful, at least for myself, you know, uh, there. Great. I, I like that a lot. Reflection is made real by saying those words out loud. Very good. Anyone else want to put forward um, their own feelings or, or theories on why I say it out loud? When I was in university and I needed to really like learn a text or if I was struggling a text or if I needed to remember history, I would read it out loud because reading it out loud, you're more engaged with the text than reading it quietly. And for me, it was a trick that helped me remember things better. And I think in the case of Tefillah, it's not necessarily about like the issue of remembering, but you're just more engaged with the text than when you are, you know, kind of just saying it inside your head. That's great. Right. It is 
scientifically proven that for the majority of neurotypical people, it is a it is the way of learning, right? It just changes the way that our brains concretize information when we engage with it in that way. I totally have that experience as well. Um, Before I share with you my own personal take on this, I'll say the halacha stands, before I give you the reason behind it, my my, my sort of like flavor that I, I place on this, the halacha stands that we are supposed to pronounce the words of tefillah. It is the Jewish way of praying. We don't pray inside our heads silently, so to speak. We don't close our lips and pray inside our minds. We do pray and whisper out loud. So to me, to have reasoning behind it really adds to the experience of something that I'm doing as a part of our tradition. So I will say that what makes it so special to me is that even if God is omniscient, even if God is Yodea Machshavot, even if God is a knower of thoughts, it's important to me that there's a difference between the thoughts that are inside my head and the thoughts that I express, the thoughts that I put out there in the world. And that is particularly important because some days I have thoughts that feel unhealthy or sad or difficult, things that I'm really wrestling with. And also there are things that I really want to commit to, but I haven't made real in the world. And they're not really real until I say them out loud and I make them real as well. And I feel that it's critical for there to be a filter that I rely upon through my mouth that takes the thoughts that are in my head so that I can say that the things that I think are okay for me to think. It's okay for me to have days where I think really challenging things. Sometimes really challenging things about God. Sometimes challenging things about myself or the world around me or the people around me. And I wrestle with it because the world is difficult, particularly the world right now is difficult. And I can make a choice to use my mouth to express kindness and to express my thoughts fairly to the people around me and to express good into the world. And that's, that's the way that I want to use my lips prayerfully. And that's how I want to use my mouth and my voice in prayer as well. I'd love to hear a few thoughts and then I'm going to end with the last text on the sheet. So let's hear from Gary and Marlise and then from Tybal. Yeah, I was just going to say another aspect of um, at least the the story that Ellie wouldn't have known, uh, but Hannah was praying. I mean, thought she was drunk, but if 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 she was only saying it in her head, that's exactly right. Yeah, if she and and that's how people know that we're praying, right? That's how we let people around us know what we're engaged in. Yeah, that's true. And Gary, uh, Gary, did um, you have a thought too? My, my question is not that I'm confused, but one of the prayer we we always we sing our prayers frequently, Michamok and all this other stuff, and you generally do it as loud as possible. But I'm trying to understand, and then one side you're doing lots of loud stuff, and the other side is maybe during your during when you're singing, it shouldn't be singing with full full rom. You know, just uh, I, I just don't know. That's just trying yeah. to to uh, to get a happy medium there. Yeah, let me clarify. When we're not, uh, what I'm talking about doesn't apply when we're singing a collective congregational melody. 
So when we are singing collectively as a congregation, we can sing as loudly as we can safely do it uh, right now. But but when we're on our own, when we're praying through, when we're davening through, and we're each maybe at our own pace in our own place in the tefillot, wow, that's nice when all good. of this applies. All right, Hybel. Um, it's, you know, as often I'm on a digression, but you said something where my jaw dropped a little because from the time the conservative movement in various places added the imachot, I took exception to Rachel being listed before Leah, and I do it the other way, regardless of who's around me. One, as a firstborn, firstborn, I think birth order is important, even if you look at who married first. And I've asked rabbis, whatever, I understand why it was done that way. But you said very matter-of-factly, well, first is that the, that the order that that were mentioned was the order that they were married. So at some point, when the Chaging are over, when you are looking for things to teach, it would be fascinating if you would look at when the order female spouses are listed reflects the order in which they were married and when it doesn't and why in a more systematic way. Because for me, at least, it goes back decades thinking, well, I don't think the Imachot should be in that order. Very, very great commentary. I love it. Uh, and I have many questions about that same text in the liturgy. So, um, after the holidays, I would love to get there with you. And I love learning liturgy and teaching it. Uh, Joanna, you get the last comment or question or whatever you like, and then I'll teach the last text. Just a couple of reflections on like, how COVID has really like impacted on me on some of the things that we discussed today. So I remember when we first got into the Zoom world in COVID, and when I first sort of started davening on Zoom, I was like incredibly quiet. Like I, I, it was almost like I wasn't really engaged with the tefillah. And, and then I kind of started to realize like, no, even if I'm sitting at home all by myself, in the places where you stand, you have to stand. And in the places where you would whisper, you have to whisper. And you have to do the act as if, you know, you were there because otherwise it just, it felt like watching a performance. It, felt, it didn't feel like davening. And the other thing that I realized in COVID is as much as I appreciate this sense of not davening too loud so as to bother someone else's tefillah, it is very noticeable to me, like I miss the hum in the room. Like that hum somehow helps your covenant also. So there's like the right balance of like not total silence. You need that little bit of the quiet hum, but not too loud that it distracts your tefillah. Yeah, it, it reminds me, Joanna, earlier in the pandemic, I, I don't think I ever wound up writing about this. So maybe I should have, maybe I should have blogged about it, but I wrote notes about it in a journal one day that Priya Parker wrote this beautiful piece. She's a wonderful writer and actually a very Jewish uh, writer in her stylings. She wrote about what we lose when we all stay on mute, as we mostly are right now, though Irv is participating exactly in the way I'm about to describe, which is that when we're all on mute, on Zoom, we miss out on all of the micro vocalizations that we can make, right? No, that wasn't a call for you to mute, or you're doing greater because you do these things where you can say like, hmm, 
or ah, or <laughs> ah, right? And we can all like make these micro kind of uh, responses to each other. And I was thinking about how that's what we do when we kind of like daven and hum and make this white noise with each other in the room uh, and how we miss out on that. And and it's sort of this unintentionally um, lonely silence behind mute. And I agree with you. I, I, I'm lonely with that too, which is a perfect transition to this last text. The Piazetzner Rebbe could not have known COVID was coming, but I love this last teaching because I think it speaks to the extreme other end of what, what happens when we are not so worried about the way that our davening is impacting on the other person, kind of when we're praying in a different uh, uh, modality is the word I'm looking for. Do not be restricted to those times when you are in the company of Hasidim who are singing. Also in your own home, whenever you feel yourself in the right mood and are able to sing, do as described above. And you do not have to raise your voice either for it is possible to sing in the merest whisper and have it heard in heaven. So as the Pizetzner Rebbe says, and when you're at home and you're davening on your own, shout, cry it out loud, sing as loud as you want at the top of your lungs, or whisper it in the tiniest whisper. When you're not worried about those other people who are near you, find whatever volume you need and take advantage of that moment of davening on your own to find the sacred volume that you need. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.